And they said, we would rather you not do these projects through SERP. We would rather be able to understand our political process and drive it through there because right. so much about what you do is less about the product that you're providing. It's about the process. Hi, and welcome to the 1CA podcast. My name is John McElligot, your host for today's episode. We're joined by Kevin Melton. He is a civil, senior civil military transition assistance specialist for the USAID Office of Transition Initiatives. Kevin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, and sorry for that long, arduous title. So not at all. I choose that myself. <laughs> Kevin, if you would, please tell us about your background, sort of um, where you went to school, what you've done previously before coming to OTI. Sure thing. And let me just thank you again for, for doing this. I think off the bat, it's important to recognize that it's this sort of coordination and cooperation is exactly what this position is for. So I think it's good that we're, we're doing this sort of activity together uh, and, and spreading that news. But a little bit about myself. So I've, I've been doing Civ Mill, if you will, for, for quite a while and also working in the, the sort of complex conflict environment space, uh, both on the, the practical side, but then also on my academic side. Started working uh, in this quite a few years ago, about 15 years ago now, um, with one of the implementing partners that actually OTI works with called Commonics International. Uh, and I was focusing at that point in the Africa region. And then they said, well, hey, if he's this guy's crazy enough to be able to go to areas like South Sudan. Maybe we'll send him to southern Afghanistan. So I was actually out there in 2007 uh, working on some alternative livelihood programming that was unrelated to some OTI stuff, but very similar to the type of activities that we would look at within OTI. And then after that, went into grad school in, uh, in Australia, uh, went to the University of Queensland, as a Rotary Peace Fellow, so even Rotary is involved in a lot of this. Uh, I have to put a plug for them. Uh, and then after that, I actually went into Afghanistan with OTI, and that was my first time working with them uh, on the ground. And uh, I was, in a way, and I'll talk more about this, but lucky to be thrown into the deep end uh, at the very tactical level to really start learning how, you know, what is CIVMIL really like in a very, very kinetic environment. Uh, and so I still use that experience to help drive what I what I do today, frankly, up more at the policy and strategy levels. Uh, and so uh, once I left, I came back to Washington and actually since 2012 have been involved both on the public and the private side uh, doing work on uh, research, but also now implementing uh, hopefully how we can better strengthen our engagement. That's wonderful. It's good. Um yeah, a lot of good background experience that you bring to OTI. Uh, how many years have you been here? So overall, I mean, as I said, from the beginning, I've been involved with OTI, even though I started, you know, with Commonics on the private side. I was actually helping support a Democratic Republic of the Congo program at the time that OTI had ongoing. Overall, it's been 15 years that I've been in and around OTI, wow. but this position in particular is pretty new uh, and I think symbolizes where OTI wants to put some of its efforts. So I've only been here for about two months now okay. uh, in this one position. but uh, again, Much longer I'm, history before that. Not new. Not new to the game. That's good to hear. Well, if you could, Kevin, tell us about the mission of OTI, why it exists, and, and why does it matter to America? So I have to start by quoting our deputy assistant administrator, and he's also a former director of OTI, uh, Rob Jenkins. Uh, and so he he tells us a lot. He's, he says, I'm, uh, I want to quote Churchill. 
by saying the world is on fire, what are you going to do about it? Um, and I think OTI very much was a response to that from USAID uh, back in 1994 when the wall came down. Uh, and the idea was how do we now integrate ourselves through USAID to help these democracies build, to look at where civil society hadn't existed, what does it mean to do economic development, but in a very targeted local way. Um, and since then, OTI has expanded the kind of work that, that we do much more into the CBE, the DDR, the, you know, even, even the stabilization realms, um, and has been seen as sort of that belly button when it comes to doing that non-security assistance, uh, when it comes to the gray zones. So, um, but, you know, I think that what's unique about OTI is certainly it's, it's culture and what it, and how we operate. I think that's part of what is what we call our secret sauce. Uh, in, in a lot of ways, um, OTI's mission does differ uh, from from the larger agency. Even though we do operate under its big umbrella, we are first and foremost aligned to achieving uh, U.S. foreign policy objectives. We we are certainly overt about the fact that uh, we do seize uh, political outcomes as part of our programming, and that. In that, we have to make sure that we're not setting ourselves up for failure through our program. So we're constantly doing different types of analysis and looking at what we what we call windows of opportunity. And and in order to do that, it also takes a very specific but yet adaptable, flexible type of uh, office and program um, to be able to work in these complex environments. And so over the almost 25 years now that OTI has been in existence, um, we've, we've definitely had a lot of lessons learned that reintegrated back into how we actually do adapt and, and flex the type of things we do. Um, yeah, I bet some of those windows of opportunity pop open quickly and briefly at times. That's right. That's yeah, right. Nimble. And we do it. So in order for us to do that, we have to work together with our USA state uh, and also DOD counterparts in order to make sure we are we understand that landscape and that environment correctly um, and we can make the best determination possible uh, to to whether or not we want to do a certain program and recently i've been saying if you if you want to look at us sort of in the you know the the, the current way it's it's well how we're sort of the venture capitalists if you will of the larger development community that our culture does promote a lot of experimentation, innovation. We're not always going to get it right, and nor do we necessarily think we're always going to get it right. Sometimes, you know, being 80% right is better than being, you know, 80% right, but being able to do something is better than being able to be 100% right and not moving, right? Um, so that's that's really the mantra that drives our, our culture. That's great to hear, and uh, you talk about OTI being able to respond quickly. You have engagement criteria by which USA and OTI would follow before getting involved somewhere. Can you talk about what those criteria are and add on to that? Who makes that decision? So there's four criteria, really, that we look at uh, whenever we, we assess um, being able to go into a country. Uh, and keep in mind that it goes well beyond just this four criteria. I mean, there's, there's a plethora of different political uh, and foreign policy discussions uh, and decisions that go into whether or not we, we move forward. But, um, and, and so in all honesty, a lot of that goes into what our first engagement criteria is, is whether or not there's 
uh, an opportunity or threat that's important to U.S. foreign policy interests. I think the second one goes into what we've already talked about a little bit, which is that window of opportunity. You know, do we do we see a window? Uh, are there the right players on the ground that we could actually work with? You know, who are those players? There's, again, not going to get 100% right, but based on our experience in the last quarter century, it's the ability to understand where that window is, and we work with the mission and the embassy on the ground to help determine that. You know, thirdly, OTI, again, because of what the way that we do our programming, adaptable, flexible, you know, innovative. Do we even hold a comparative advantage when it comes to entering that country? It might be that one of our you know, donor partners, another country, already has a mechanism in place that can maybe take care of some of that, or really just working through the host government and, and advising the mission using OTI advisors to say, here's, here's a way maybe you can use existing resources rather than having us duplicate it through a program, right? So okay. it's, it's making sure we, we check that box. So that would, in that case, it, if you're not engaged in a country, doesn't mean you don't care about it, but it doesn't fit that criteria. And then could mean, as you say, the host country just simply has a mechanism in place or an allied nation has a better way of doing it. Correct. And there could be a myriad of other reasons, but, you know, there's what we're trying not to do is just rush to the assumption that you need a program, that we have to ultimately spend money, put people's lives at risk uh, in order to get an objective that, frankly, may just need, you know, a facilitated planning session or maybe certain expertise coming from our, our different experts that we have who understand how to work in these environments that can also support the USAID mission and the embassy that, that is out there. Okay. Um, and I think that speaks, too, to the fourth criteria, which is we, OTI, do not operate when we know that our implementing partners cannot operate. Our model is we are very much in tune working together with uh, our, our close partners uh, that are all U.S.-based organizations, and they will... They are the ones really running the operations when it comes down to it. They are the ones making sure that we can hire and vet the correct local staff, the local organizations, that we can, we can even have offices uh, in the specific country. And in countries where we don't have a footprint because security may be too tight, we still can do proxy type operations, but we also have to make sure our implementing partners can, can do that and do it in a safe way. So that's, that's really important for us in achieving success. Kevin, can you talk about where OTI is operating overseas today? Well, so I'll make the point here, actually, that we work where you work. So, and I think it's important because rather than go through every single country, um, you know, I'll tell you that at any point we, we operate globally. Uh, we do touch on most continents, again, where there's foreign policy objectives in place. Currently, we're in 14 countries, and that's about average uh, for, for us to, to operate. Um, again, I, I want to stress that even though we may not have a programming presence, because those countries are where we have programming, it's not that we're not looking at additional areas nor advising on other areas uh, through our teams. And usually we do that both here in Washington, but also out at the missions and through phone calls and also with the State Department. 
Uh, more and more, we're having discussions with our DoD colleagues uh, about that. Part of my job is actually to figure out a way to make sure we strengthen that engagement, uh, you know, through through different areas, both here in the United States, but also as we see each other uh, at the operational and tactical levels. You know, the the idea being that when we operate in these countries, that we know we're going to go in with a certain idea of what that plan is, but then that plan is going to change over time and Hopefully that means our program continues uh, in those countries because we see, again, there's still a window of opportunity to, to be there. But there are times where there may be a decision made where that's that's not necessarily where we're going to stick around or maybe we need to shift the way that we're currently doing it. So, Kevin, you're the Senior CivMil Transition Assistance Specialist. Would you say that your role is that you talk about coordinating with the civil affairs uh, community. Mm-hmm. Is that sort of at the tactical, operational, strategic level in terms of DOD speak? And I understand that you work with uh, the active duty and reserve components. So are, are you sort of a belly button at OTI for the CA community? Yeah, I'm, I'm one man show, right? Ultimately, OTI has for a very long time worked together with our, our uniform partners. Um, we've done it uh, mostly on an ad hoc basis. I'd say the first time we really put uh, more momentum behind it was in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, where we saw ourselves really, really needing to uh, deconflict and understand what what it meant to work together uh, at what that operational to tactical. That? I'm sorry? What do you think led to that need? What were the conflicts that needed to be deconflicted? Right. So I would say I think a lot of it did lead to that deconfliction in, in terms of Understanding the environment, so creating that common operating picture that at times understanding what the grievances were, where were the, where were the sources uh, of conflict that we were actually trying to address at some of those very local levels um, so that we, we weren't working at cross purposes. You know, when you're working together in that close environment, one thing you do, because again, we're aiming for political outcomes, if you're aiming for that political outcome in a way that doesn't necessarily jive with maybe what the security side is trying to accomplish, you can put you know people's lives at risk. And frankly, that's not how you know we we should be managing the taxpayer dollar in the best way. And so I think understanding that we usually face common missions, you know, even though it may not be written as such, but we do understand that security impacts development and development impacts security is that that opportunity to see each other and do strategic planning together, even even if that means tactically, right? I mean, obviously, at that level, it's much more about really seeing what actors, where, what areas we want to work in, at what times. And I think as you sort of go up the chain, and myself having worked tactically when I started, moving up to the operational levels where we saw more about, okay, what do we want to do in, in, across a region, across a certain zone to better impact maybe a political situation or a dialogue or a reconciliation process. I think at the once you get to the strategic levels, you're talking about what are you doing that better sequence and layer the type of things that we need to do between development, security, and diplomacy, frankly, um, so that we can all sit around one table and we're not just using one tool to try to solve a problem that may not necessitate that one tool, right? Uh, at this point, it's the whole of government approach actually being used as whole of government. Yeah, it makes sense. Uh, the DOD community talks about the three Ds of diplomacy, defense, development. 
So, I mean, I think it waxes and wanes depending on who you have in the room and, and how qualified they are to do and the experience. I also think this is the right direction because I have I've seen and heard, even within DOD, because DOD has so many layers to it, uh, at the tactical level, operational level within civil affairs, one team here is spending CERP money on a program or paying off some person as a leader, um, and then they don't know that the other person across the street is paying the same amount of money or the same latrine system or road or whatever it is. So uh, I think communication is always very helpful in this case. It is, and, and I would say that what we're realizing you know, with our OTI programs is even though our, certainly our mission or mandate is to support directly a security outcome, right? But so much of what we do with local communities to build their social cohesion, to uh, kind of look at rifts between different ethnic groups, you know, and that list goes on and on, does ultimately have a security impact in how we consolidate gains, you know, and, and that's one of the things why I feel having a stronger relationship with our security counterparts, because ultimately we need that security environment in order to operate. But in order to achieve that security environment, you all, we also need to think about what it means to consolidate again and not leave a vacuum, which we currently see, you know, violent extremist organizations take advantage of. You know, and I think the other, the other thing is sometimes we forget, even in our own examples here in the United States. I mean, the strength of our country comes from the local levels. We were built off of that sense of community and the ability for communities to respond to their own issues, the ability for them to be what we call resilient to to shocks that may occur. And that doesn't necessarily mean a crisis or a disaster. That can be a political issue, right? And that the fact that we need to sit around a table, debate it, and somehow find a path towards reconciliation. I think that we see a lot of that happening right now where sometimes the government won't be able to respond. Sometimes law enforcement isn't there to be able to support that response. So what are we going to do to enable some of those civil society elements that can support a, you know, a better response to certain grievances and conflicts and not allow those factors to get, especially the youth, pushed towards, you know, exploring other options of violence, uh, and that, that we've seen a lot of times in our, in our, uh, in the field, right? And, you know, I'll give you one example. One of the things that I was doing when I was in Kandahar, Afghanistan, uh, you know, by working at the tactical level, you know, we, we worked with six, an area with six different tribes. Uh, and I was actually in Argandot district, Kandahar in 2009 and 2010 very violent uh, time, and I was extremely lucky to work with very, very good leadership uh, from the DOD side, uh, specifically uh, with the, the Striker Brigade and then also the 82nd and 101st while I was there. And I'll tell you that they worked well with us in a- enabling OTI in particular to help drive a strategy with these battalion commanders and company commanders. And building back a political uh, system in a, in a very small district, but a very critical district that could eventually get to a livelihood outcome, that could eventually get to a security outcome, uh, even though they understood it wasn't going to necessarily link back to government right away. What was interesting to me is at one point, there was a request from this political body that started forming from the local you know, Afghans, 
And they said, we would rather you not do these projects through SERP. We would rather be able to understand our political process and drive it through there because so much about what you do is less about the product that you're providing. It's about the process in order to get to that product, certainly. So it was good to hear from the Afghans who were driving it, and we're going to be living there well beyond whenever you left. That's right, and I think to to attest to it, uh, although I haven't looked at some of the statistics recently, but uh, I do know that they have been resilient to the point where just recently, uh, at least a couple of years ago still, you know, this was one of the areas ISIS wasn't actually able to get into because they they saw themselves as having something politically, socially across six different tribal areas that was was good enough for them to hold on to, right? right? And they were going to fight for it. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. Get published and win some money. The Civil Affairs Association and its partners invite you to send an originally written issue paper with recommendations related to some or all of .mil PFP. You should reference the new FM 3-57 in the Civil Affairs Operations 2025 and Beyond White Paper. Given the White Paper and the Stabilization Assistance Framework, how can the CA Regiment optimize its force? How can the Army and Marine Corps organize, train, educate, and resource CA forces to synchronize and leverage the efforts of multiple partners and sustain engagements to mitigate conflict, shape security environments, and prevail across the range of military operations? The top five papers will be published in the 2018-19 Civil Affairs Issue Papers. Authors will present them at the CA Centennial and Symposium at Fort Bragg, North Carolina on 2-4 November. The top paper will receive $1,000 cash, second gets $500, and third $250. Papers prepared jointly by civilian and military professionals are most welcome. The deadline is 7 September, so please send all papers and inquiries to papers at civilfairsassoc.org. Welcome back to the 1CA podcast. Kevin, I want to go back to um, a comment you made earlier about consolidating gains. So we met recently at a meeting of the Civil Affairs Association, and you were there speaking about the new uh, stabilization assistance review document. And the, the meeting was focused on uh, what it meant to be consolidating gains. What does that mean to you? And, and can you tie it to the, uh, this SAR document? How is it defined within the Stabilization Assistance Review? The Stabilization Assistance Review, which was recently signed by all uh, the principals from state DOD and here at USAID, um, there was two major things that the SAR has brought to our community. And, and first and foremost, there, there was a, a, a definition, or finally, that the U.S. government can now define what stabilization means across all 3Ds. Um, and I think to, to point out the fact that the root of that definition is that stabilization is ultimately a political endeavor. And then in order to achieve that political endeavor, we needed to make sure that we uh, allowed our State Department to lead that overall effort. Uh, and, and then we were able to put USAID as the lead role for all non-security assistance to, to reach some of the political objectives necessary for that endeavor. But that also recognizing DOD is an important part to this and all of DOD's elements to support us getting to that those political objectives, um, right? 
And, and so I think the, that first and foremost definitional piece was one of the main things coming out of the, of the SAR. And then secondly, was a little bit more clarity when it came to what are the roles and responsibilities, as I just mentioned, who leads what um, and who's in support. Now, there's still a long road ahead of us. We still have to, you know, once you have a policy, that's great. Now it has to go through, at least, you know, for DOD speak, it has to go through .mopf, right, uh, which can take some time. But already there's been some, you know, really good uh, traction towards it trickling down. Uh, you know, and, and, and we're going to see some changes coming down the pike with the Directive 3000.05, you know, on stabilization in DOD. And, and I, there's some revisions happening with uh, Joint Publication 307 as well. Okay. Um, and, and we've actually been, been asked to, to comment and, and you know, bring our opinions into those edits, which is, is actually really good. You know, but the, the, the SAR uh, is... As I said, we still have to go through a lot of implementation. We still have to get, you know, what does it actually mean for specifically the country level, those country teams, and making sure that, one, we're not trying to fix something that's not broken, right? This isn't Washington just swooping in. Um, but this is really a way to more strategically think about how do we use that whole of government approach get over the challenges that have certainly, you know, been around the last decade to two decades worth of holistic government approaches um, and, and taking some of those real lessons learned that we've seen come out, for instance, in the cigar report that, uh, that, you know, 200 page report on stabilization, but right. certainly something that we paid attention to uh, as one of the many documents and many interviews that were conducted you know, for the SAR. So, you know, for now, it's a great joint effort. Uh, I think it should be recognized that the fact that we have a, we have this joint effort and it continues to be a joint effort uh, that has, is certainly facilitated through the NSC. Uh, and, and I think we'll be seeing a lot more changes coming down the pipe that reinforces the kind of things I know that we want and we've seen on the ground that have frustrated us uh, back in Washington. Yeah, I think it's a huge milestone. It's a good marker. And then I think building off of that, you say that a lot more come. Um, I also believe that it would take a generation of people with that mindset to think it. So if they're working in the DOD world or civil affairs to understand that, yes, state is in control when you're in country. You fall into the country team and the ambassador representing the, the president of the United States and DOD has the security side, AID has the non-security side, regardless of budget. So I know that DOD tends to be the big elephant and has a lot of funding. I think your FY18 budget for transition initiatives is $92 million, small compared to the DOD budget. But when you're in country and you're using those dollars wisely, it can have a huge impact and a, and a lasting impact. Where can people go to read the Stabilization Assistance Review? So right now, uh, and let me actually, before I answer that, make a couple points. Even though, yes, at the country level, we're going to, you know, state, rather than being in control of a process, we're going to have a, as a lead in terms of the effort for the foreign policy aspects, uh, and they'll be able to help monitor that. But I think, again, what's, what's good here is it's less about who controls it. It's more about what is this system in terms of 
how we see each of the agencies leading and then facilitating each other. There's going to be a huge overlap when it comes to that too. So okay. we're Good still point. figuring we're still figuring that out. And actually, that that leads to to answering your question, which is. Right now, we are still working on how to effectively roll this out in a you know more public way, um, and it, there there will be some events coming down the pike. Um, there's a stabilization symposium that will be held in Washington uh, June 26th and 27th, uh, and and we're looking to hopefully have that be one of the big events that speaks to the SAR uh, a little bit, gets our you know again our uh, implementing partners involved and because it's a lot about them as well about how we see it being implemented um, but we will we'll make sure that whatever we do as we roll this out continues to be across all 3ds um, and you will no doubt see the document posted uh, more and more probably over the next month or two great that's wonderful and uh, we'll push that out to the listeners of the 1ca podcast as well excellent kevin i wanted to ask you how as the Sid Mill guy here at OTI, how can active duty and reserve civil affairs members connect with OTI? At which level within the CA community is the most appropriate connection to what you do at OTI? So this is really part of you know the crux of what this new position is about. Um, you know, one of the main priorities is how do we do better engagement? How do we insert ourselves not just from the planning perspective, but then also from different coordination elements, platforms, et cetera. Um, you know, right now, we don't, again, we don't want to fix what's not broken. And so the relationships we already have with units, certainly at the operational and tactical levels, we, we want to continue promoting those. I mean, that's that's something that with our teams, whether it be on the African continent, you know, the Central Asia or South America, keep pushing how those relationships have been. My job, though, is to make sure we can organize ourselves a bit better so that as we've seen some of our, you know, a lot of people are familiar with the Office of Foreign Disaster Assistance, right? And they hear a lot of people talk about, oh, I've been to the Jayhawk course and I've done this. Well, they, you know, our OPTA colleagues who cover that humanitarian assistance realm, you know, they've been, they've been doing that for about 20 years, if not longer, right? Uh, and they've, they've done a great job of organizing themselves and getting the right resources in place and the right bodies where they need to be. Yeah. OTI, it's, it's very different, right? In terms of what we do. Uh, so we're not necessarily going to do what OPTA does, right? In terms of our signal engagement. Um, but I think, for how we look to engage and this, you know, as, and as we get our strategic plan for engagement with SIDMEL over the next 12, 18 months or so, um, is we're, we're going to look to have a few things happen. And, and one is going to be uh, our primary relationship for right now because of the way our footprint overlaps and sort of the way we work overlaps is going to be with the, with the SOCOM community right now. Um, now, that's not to say we're not available for everything else. It's just we also have very limited resources. And I think the way that we see ourselves tapping in globally is is through that through that network. Right. Uh, and so, so within CA that would be the USASOC and then down to the ninety fifth brigade and that's correct. Any of the random CA people who are out in SOCOM. That that's correct. Absolutely. Um, and so we we certainly will continue engaging with other elements and even other elements that include the Civil Affairs Association as we have been, so that you know we're part of that dialogue. Um, but in terms of 
actual how do we roll this out, uh, we'll have positions that we will roll out at SOCOM and then two TSOCs. Uh, we'll have one with SOCAP, one with SOCSAT. Uh, that's where a majority of our programming is currently. We will engage with some of the other TSOCs, but we probably won't put somebody there just yet. Uh, but we'll also have you know, a, a good bench of folks that who are trained, who have civil experience, who, who are from OTI and understand OTI, but also the larger agency and how we work in, you know, across stability and political transition environments, uh, who, who help, you know, with search for planning, search for how we do exercises and training, uh, and then stuff when we actually need people at the tactical levels, which uh, we will look to do more and more as the SAR, which does say we need to do co-deployment and put civilians out there, uh, that's that's in response to to a lot of that, is how do we actually get that done. Kevin, does OTI have data or reports uh, that would be helpful for a, a CA team that's within USASOC, for example, or even a, a Marine Corps CA team or planners? So if they wanted to go, if they're going to be working in whatever country, would it be helpful for them to look at any data reports that OTI has? So there are certainly great products that we have that describe the type of work that we do. But again, keep in mind, as, as you've said uh, earlier, you know, we things are very contextual, right? And we can talk about maybe the larger elements of CDE or DDR or stabilization that certainly we cover. But I think the way in which those are done, I think we would we would really be doing a disservice to anybody just to say, hey, read this. You'll, fi- you'll figure out exactly how we work. So part of what we're looking at doing, um, and I'm certainly happy to, you know, communicate with anyone interested, uh, is how do we make sure that we're, we're engaging on a couple fronts? One is getting into uh, exercises that are relevant so that we learn how to operate and use uh, each other's capabilities when it comes to certain problem sets. You know, at the end of the day, the civil affairs community and OTI should see one another as force multipliers, right? So that's something that we need to still work on, and we need to still figure out how do we do that in a, in a you know, easy fashion. So you need to be invited to some exercises. Um, it would help. That would help, and don't get me wrong, we have invites, but we also want to, again, prioritize where does it make the most sense. And the good news is, is I've had so far some good conversations with, with folks at Fort Bragg, not to say I'll stop it there, but that's that's certainly helping to shape our ideas at the moment. Good. What do you need from the civil affairs community? What would help your your job? What would help uh, OTI to be successful? So I would say civil affairs, as I said, is a, you know, compared to OTI, not just in numbers, um, but certainly in, in just the breadth and depth of what uh, civil affairs has, is the ability to support some of what we want at the tactical level and operational levels. And I would say what I would ask from civil affairs is don't be, don't hesitate to seek us out, right? We need to do that too. But I would ask that we, we do operate in the same countries, in the same areas, uh, usually with very, very, uh, Overlapping missions, right? And that just doesn't go for civil affairs. That's also the MISO crowd, right? And I think a lot of times we are still organically figuring out how we do that coordination. 
And so what I ask a lot of, a lot of times from uh, our CA colleagues is, you know, let's be proactive, you know, try, don't, don't go out somewhere and thinking, you know, just going to the embassy or the aid mission is enough. You know, ask, where's, where's that OGI person? You know, where's, is there, is there a country rep or a country representative who is the main person for our programs at the country level? We have two, by the way, country rep and deputy country rep. Okay. Seek them out. Talk to them. Because the more we're integrating you and the more you're integrating us into your, your day to day, Certainly when it comes to info sharing uh, and coordinating, you know, different con ops plans, it ultimately gets us closer to achieving the same effects. Right. Um, that may not necessarily, again, be in writing because we're not trying to, you know, go for that security mission. But as we've said, we affect each other. So I think right now I would ask, be proactive when it comes to coordinating and info sharing. And I know I wouldn't be doing my colleagues justice if I said, don't put everything on the high side. Right. Try to make some things on class. And I know CA does a great job of trying to do that. The ones I've worked with, they're constantly battling what's classified and what's not. Right. No, but keep in mind, we're, we're working with local partners, right? And so a lot of times what we need uh, to be able to drive our activities is to be able to share certain information. And I think what we've learned over the years is to have a very robust research and analytical platform with our programming, which we're happy to share as well. Um, and a lot of times we will we'll see things that will also affect the way we think on the security side. So, you know, but I would say don't don't be shy about that. And, uh, you know, I think sometimes there's a little bit of trust deficit at times. You know, but but that we'll get over that. We're going to get to know each other better, uh, and I think a great way of doing that is be proactive. That's the civil affairs job. We've been trained to inter interact with people and to coordinate. So uh, I would hope the civil affairs community and those listening to the podcast would reach out to you. I'm Kevin Melton of the USAID Office of Transition Initiatives. Thank you very much for being on the podcast. Thank you so much. Appreciate. It. Thanks for all you do. Thank you for spending some time with us. Please subscribe and come back for another installment of 1CA. Until then, be safe and secure the victory.